Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I am your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and this season we are exploring the intersection of race and voting rights. One element of this conversation that is front and center of today's headlines is the role and impact of the courts. And we are delighted to be joined by two guests today who are actively involved in this work with tremendous insight to share. Both of our guests have credentials far too numerous to list. It would be the entire episode, but we do wanna give you a little sense of who they are. We welcome back to the podcast, Professor Irving Joyner, an award-winning professor of law at North Carolina Central University School of Law, where for 12 years he served as associate dean. Among the numerous courses he teaches are civil rights and race and the law. Professor Joyner is also a regular legal commentator for local, state, and national media, primarily in the areas of law, politics, civil rights, and radical justice and the co-host of the highly acclaimed Legal Eagle Review radio show, which is dedicated to a discussion of current local and national legal issues and is heard each Sunday evening on WNCU 90.7 FM. We also welcome today, Dr. Carol Anderson, who is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University and author of White Rage, the Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, a New York Times bestseller, Washington Post's notable book of 2016, and a National Book Critics Circle Award winner. She is also the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which was long listed for the National Book Award and a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Award in Nonfiction. In 2018, she was awarded a fellowship in constitutional studies by the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Mm -hmm. And she currently serves on the advisory board of the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative. Welcome Irving and Carol, my goodness. We are so honored to have two people of your stature um, to talk to our audience today. Um, I wanna begin, um, get right into this whole voting rights thing. And I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Anderson, and ask you to tell us about the Voting Rights Act. What was it all about initially and why was it necessary to begin with? So as a historian, I'm gonna take us back a bit. Um, I'm gonna take us back to 1890. I'm not gonna take us all the way back to the founding of this nation, but I'm gonna take us back to 1890. Um, and then we're going to, later on, we're gonna go back further. but in 1890, you had the rise of Jim Crow. And that a key element in the rise of Jim Crow was the massive disfranchisement of black voters. In Mississippi, what Mississippi was hollering was voter fraud. We've got this massive rampant voter fraud. We've got to maintain election integrity. And the way we're gonna do that is to clean up the ballot box. We're gonna make sure that only those people who should be voting are voting. And so it sounds so noble but what it was designed to do was to remove black voters from the polls. And they used things that sounded reasonable like the poll tax saying, oh, democracy is expensive. So, you know, and we don't think it's too much to ask for you to pay a small fee in order to be able to vote. And what they were doing was getting around the 15th amendment because the 15th amendment says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, 
color, or previous condition of servitude. So what Mississippi did was to use the legacies of slavery. So instead of saying we don't want black folks to vote, they use the residuals of slavery, like poverty, to make poverty one of the access points to the ballot box. And they use literacy as the access point to the ballot box. All of that meant that by the time we got to the Second World War, these poll tax states, only there was only a 7% voter turnout rate in the 1942 midterm election, 7% in a federal election. It also meant that by the time we got into the 1960s, there were counties in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Georgia, where there were no Black people registered to vote. Black folks mobilized, mobilized forever, but really coming out of that Second World War, and you got this clash on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where it was about the right to vote. That clash so stunned the world because the cameras were rolling and it led to the Voting Rights Act. And what made the Voting Rights Act of 1965 so powerful was that it had a pre-clearance provision because what had been happening was that these, these states would implement one of these racially discriminatory laws, making it look race neutral, but it's actually racially discriminatory. And then you'd have this massive litigation coming in, like from the NAACP and the LDF, suing, suing, suing. But by that time, several elections have gone by that were absolutely racially discriminatory and disfranchising. So what this did was to say, you know, we're going to stop this mess. So before you implement one of these laws, if you have fewer than 50% of your voters registered by for the 1964 presidential election, and you use one of these racially discriminatory devices, you have to get your voting laws approved by the U.S. Department of Justice first, that's pre-clearance, or by the federal courts in D.C., First, before you implement the law, let us look at it to make sure it's not racially discriminatory. That blew their minds. I mean, you had South Carolina and Mississippi and Virginia and Georgia hollering something fierce going, wait a minute, what do you mean we can't discriminate? This is how we roll. This is what we do. This is how we are. <laughs> and, and, and you had the U.S. Department of Justice pushing back going, no, you are discriminating against American citizens. The Voting Rights Act worked. In Mississippi before, in 1964, 65, only 6.7% of African-Americans in Mississippi were registered to vote. Now, you know, Mississippi got some black folk. So when you only got 6.7% registered to vote, you know that something nasty is happening up in there. By 67, you had almost 60% of African-Americans registered to vote. That was the power of the Voting Rights Act. And you know, something that has that kind of power to dismantle racial discrimination, you know it's going to be a there's going to be a target put on it. And it was immediately, and we see it all the way up through uh, to where we are today. So Professor Joyner, then I guess the 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 question for me is 
why is this such a, why has there been such a target on the Voting Rights Act? I mean, because it took 50 years, right, for them to come back around and say, okay, now we've got to dismantle this thing again. And this time we've got to be a little more intentional. So, so why is, why is the Voting Rights Act the, the, um, the bane of so many in America? Well, first of all, let me just uh, commend uh, Dr. Anderson on that uh, that summary of the uh, of the history, very uh, in depth uh, and uh, and on point. Uh, the uh, power of the uh, Voting Rights Act uh, is probably not uh, in dispute. Uh, it has uh, resulted in uh, the rise of African American political power. In this uh, in this country, but it's also important, I think, to uh, to note that uh, the Voting Rights Act was primarily focused on the uh, on the South, uh, the Jim Crow South, uh, the Jim Crow South that kind of spread westward uh, and eventually seeped up north. But uh, in 1965, and and I can recall. Uh, I was born in uh, Brooklyn uh, because my mother was a part of the great black migration uh, that began in the South uh, around 1920. Uh, so I was born in, uh, in Brooklyn, but I was raised in North Carolina. And I had the uh, unique experience of watching my mother, who was in New York, being able to register and vote. And she did it on a regular and constant uh, basis while watching my grandparents who were in North Carolina being unable to register and, uh, and vote. Uh, North Carolina was supposed to be the most progressive state in the South uh, during, uh, during those days. And uh, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, 18% of the African-American uh, community uh, in this state uh, were, uh, were able to uh, register and, uh, and to vote. And those typically were the uh, high class, uh, the luminaries among uh, the race who were able to get in. But my grandparents were not a part of that uh, class and never did uh, achieve the opportunity to uh, register and vote. So I was able to see this difference. And the difference was at that point to me, geographical, uh, because had I been in New York, I wouldn't have had that experience. But because I was in North Carolina and observing uh, the impact of uh, Jim Crow laws and what it did to my grandparents and the uh, humiliation uh, that uh, they felt when they went down to register and were told that they could not satisfy the uh, literacy test. Uh, a literacy test that was uh, made up uh, and uh, designed so that they could not pass uh, that test. Uh, I could see the harm and the hurt and the pain uh, suffered. And uh, so I always dedicated myself that uh, every election that I would uh, have uh, after 18, that I was going to register and vote in no matter what the uh, issues uh, were. But the this 1965 Voting Rights Act changed the political calculus. And we went from, uh, I think Dr. Anderson can, can speak more to this, from four 
African-Americans in Congress prior to 1960 to uh, roughly uh, what 45 or so in Congress uh, today. That's a hell of an accomplishment. And but for the presence of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, that would not have been possible. Added to that, though, was the ingenuity of uh, African-Americans that uh, became very evident beginning around the uh, 1980s uh, when they recognized that the law standing alone was not enough, that there had to be other efforts undertaken uh, that would improve the opportunity for people to vote. And it was the change in the opportunities for people to vote that really changed the calculus such that in 2008, when Barack Obama uh, ran for, uh, for president in this country, the opportunities for African-Americans to vote in many states had expanded such that it resulted in, in several uh, southern states, a higher turnout of African-Americans to vote than among whites, uh, which was uh, historic. Uh, and takes us back really to uh, Reconstruction Day mm -hmm. uh, when African-Americans were voting and registering at the rate of 90 and 95 percent mm -hmm. of their uh, of their el eligibility. So this uh, Voting Rights Act uh, was a pivotal uh, uh, accelerator in the effort toward uh, political participation. And uh, we uh, certainly owe a lot to it. And that is why it is on the chopping block today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and I would I would add to that that part of what you're seeing here is this fear. I mean, it is the fear that happened in Reconstruction. It is the fear that happened in the rise of Jim Crow. It is the fear uh, that happened with the election of Barack Obama. That look at all of these black folks voting. And so part of part of what we have to understand is that um, with Obama. Obama was the trigger. The stuff had been happening all along. There had been challenges all along from um, the South, Katzenbach, South Carolina v. Katzenbach decision uh, to the Allen v. State Board decision. I'm, I'm, I'm messing that up, but it was Virginia and Mississippi in like 69 um, to the uh, Mobile decision that where the, the courts have said, oh, you've got to have intent to discriminate. It's not just that you have to have mm -hmm. the results of discrimination. And Congress came back and said, not today, Satan, not today. All you have to do is have the impact. You don't have to show intent because think about how hard it is to show intent. You got to see the memos. You got to have the <laughs> voice recordings where they're like, yo, how do we stop these black folks from voting? Um, and, and so they're like, no, it's not intent. And they also expanded, I think it was in 75, to have um, language discrimination in there, to deal with having ballots that were actually, if you had a, a population that spoke a language besides English, and they were like 5% of your voting population, then you had to have your election materials in that language. And so you're seeing this incredible expansion of the right to vote, access to the ballot box. And then you got the motor voter law um, that said, we figured out that registration um, after the 88 election, uh, where you had voter turnout was as low it hadn't been that low since 1924. 
And they looked up and they said, Woo, no, what are the barriers to access to the ballot box? And so they came up with the National Voter Registration Act. So saying that if you go to the driver's license bureau, uh, that you could be automatically registered there. So it wasn't like having to go down to the board of elections between eight and five on, on a work day uh, when you couldn't get off work to go register to vote. So they were really figuring out how do you expand this thing? But part of what we're also seeing then um, with Obama's election is that part of the narrative that's told is like, oh, we have overcome. Look at us. We put a black man in the White House. Whoa. And that narrative isn't quite right, because what that narrative is saying is, wow, look at us. We whites in America overwhelmingly voted for a black man. We have overcome. Actually, the majority of whites who have voted have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. You have not had the majority of whites vote for a Democratic candidate. And the same holds true for the election of Barack Obama. So you might ask yourself, self, how on earth did this black man get into the White House? And he got into the White House by having an incredible ground game. There were, there were a sizable number of whites who voted for him, but his organizing skills brought out millions of new voters, folks who had never voted before, who were not registered to vote. They were overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young, and poor. That would become the hit list for voter suppression techniques that we see in the 21st century, because that was the coalition that put Barack Obama in the White House. And so it's like, how do we stop these folks from voting, but do so by getting around the 15th Amendment and getting around the Voting Rights Act? And that's where the courts stepped in. Right. So then when you look at the um, Shelby decision, was mm -hmm. it really targeted just for Black people or then, and all of these other people were casualties of this war or was this intentional of, of this hit list, as you mentioned, um, to stop all of these people um, from being able to, or at least restricting um, their abilities to vote? Well, you know, uh, in, 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 in this political a world that we're in today, uh, any advancement that's uh, uh, advantageous to African-Americans is advantageous to every racial group in this country. And every attack that is successful against African-Americans redounds also to the detriment of every racial group in this country. We are the litmus test uh, in a very uh, real sense. Um, you know, you also have to remember that the Voting Rights Act was not permanent. Uh, it was meant to be temporary. Uh, but Congress had to reauthorize it. Uh, and it was regularly reauthorized and liberalized, uh, as uh, Dr. Anderson uh, mentioned, uh, up until uh, 2008. Uh, virtually every representative in Congress and in the Senate voted for the reauthorization of the uh, Voting Rights Act as if it was a rite of passage, uh, that this is something that we have to do. But it was uh, the uh, election of Barack Obama that changed the disposition 
in this country such that there was now the attack. And Shelby, you know, ironically, uh, Shelby uh, uh, came out of a county that had more uh, voting rights failures uh, than any location in this country. Regularly, they were called on the carpet by the uh, Justice Department, by the uh, federal courts uh, for their efforts to uh, discriminate. They never stopped. Uh, it was an ongoing effort. They looked for every trick in the book. And finally, they were able to find a sympathetic, uh, uh, well, sympathetic voices on the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, undermined Section 5 of the uh, Voting Rights Act and is now probably in the process of undermining Section 2 of the uh, Voting Rights uh, Act. But uh, it, it, it had a target, and there was a, 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 a ongoing attack, drumbeat, from uh, immediately after the uh, Voting Rights Act was passed up until uh, Shelby and subsequent cases that undermined the impact and importance of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And we had a lot of those cases right here in North Carolina. Uh, we yes. fought those battles, and uh, we won uh, all of, uh, of them, yet. Uh, the uh, the courts have sided now with that conservative drift, and that conservative drift uh, is uh, singularly focused on taking away the power of African Americans and other racial minorities to participate in the uh, political franchise. Right. I mean, so one of the things that uh, in that Shelby County v. Holder decision. So first, yes, Shelby County acted a fool and kept annexing and redistricting and annexing and redistricting until the sole black councilman was in a district that had gone like 70, 80 percent against Obama. So, of course, that lone black councilman lost his seat. And 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 all of those changes that Shelby County was making, they hadn't gone up to the Department of Justice like the law says they were supposed to. The U.S. Supreme Court looks at that and John Roberts' decision was just fantasy. He was like, you know, racism is over. Uh, it's not like it was back in 1965. We have overcome. Look at all of these, these Black elected officials. Look at all of these Hispanic elected officials. I mean, we have overcome. So the need for the Voting Rights Act really isn't there anymore. And, you know, and this legislation picks on the South. Well, as my mother used to say, when I would hit my brother, my brother would pop me back and I'd go hollering to her. And I was like, mommy, mommy, Wendell's picking on me. She's like, what you doing to make yourself so pickable? <laughs> and so this was the South making itself pickable. When you systematically annihilate the right to vote for American citizens based on race, you are making yourself pickable. So it wasn't the, the, the nation picking on the South. It was that the South was doing wrong. And the Voting Rights Act had bail-in and bail-out provisions so that if you didn't act a fool for a certain number of years, and I mean, that's all it required, don't act a fool, then you don't have to come under the Voting Rights Act anymore. Hmm. Well, there were only a handful of jurisdictions that stopped acting a fool. The rest of them kept trying, like Shelby County, kept doing stuff to discriminate against the voting rights of African-Americans. 
And it had bail in provisions where there were districts that would start acting a fool and they would come under the Voting Rights Act. And so there are areas in California, areas in Arizona, areas in like New York that were coming under the Voting Rights Act because they were discriminating against their voting rights, pop, their voting population. So, so for John Roberts to call it static and not necessary anymore, and just and and the not necessary anymore. When you think about it, in the 2006 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, the U.S. Department of Justice laid before Congress over 700 proposed changes that the Department of Justice had blocked from 1982. So not from 1965, but just from 1982 up to 2006 that they had blocked because it was racially discriminatory. So to say that racism was a thing of the past, when you're looking not just a, even a decade earlier to when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized to see over 700 proposed changes, it's like, boy, you're lying, you're lying. And, but that 5-4 decision, and I have to say where Clarence Thomas was one of the five, really, really sends the signal about how evil and pernicious this decision was. Because within two hours after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, Texas implemented a racially discriminatory voter ID law. And how, what do I mean by racially discriminatory? They looked at who had what types of IDs and then crafted their, what the eligible IDs were to be able to vote based on those kinds, that kind of that kind of discrimination. They knew, for example, that in one third of their counties, they didn't have driver's license bureaus and that folks were gonna to have to make a 250 mile round trip to get a driver's license to be able to vote. They marked out the reimbursement provision that was in the law so that people were now going to have to make that 250 mile round trip on their own dime. That's a poll tax. Mm -hmm. They knew that their they said your government issued student ID will not qualify as uh, eligible, make you eligible to vote. 50% of the students in the state colleges and universities are folks of color. They said, but that ID doesn't count, but your gun, your concealed weapon card does, your gun card does. 80% of those who own guns and have those cards in Texas are white. So that's how you can mask the discrimination underneath. So let's look at Alabama. What Alabama did was say, you have to have a government issued photo ID to be able to vote, but your public housing ID doesn't count. Now, does it get more government issued than public housing? 71% mm -hmm. of those in public housing in Alabama are African-American. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund figured out that for many, it was the only ID that they had was that government issued public housing ID. So you're wiping them out. Then Governor Bentley, listening to his mistress, decided to shut down the department. You can't make this stuff up. Decided <laughs> to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties, saying it was for fiscal reasons. 
So what that was doing then for folks who, who did not have a government issued photo ID, it was requiring them to go 50 miles to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles to go get a driver's license to be able to vote. But if you don't have a driver's license, so you're not driving, and Alabama's ranked 48th in the nation in terms of public transportation, how are you making this 100-mile round trip to be able to get the license that you need in order to be able to vote? But you notice they didn't say, we don't want Black folks to vote. But this is how you can shut it down by shutting down the places where people can get these IDs by identifying IDs by race and making the ones that whites have the, the having greater numbers to be the access point to the ballot box while wiping away and saying that those that the ones that African-Americans hold are ineligible to be able to access the ballot box. We see up in, in, in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, what Governor Scott Walker did. And Milwaukee has like 70% of the state's black population. What he did was to, set, to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in Milwaukee and move them further away from public transportation lines while increasing the number in the white suburbs and in the white rural counties, the numbers of, of departments of motor vehicles so people could get the driver's license to be able to vote, but to lower the access points for Black folks in Milwaukee and to always craft it in terms of being fiscally responsible. You want a government that's fiscally responsible, don't you? You want a government that's a good steward of your tax dollars. I mean, it sounds so doggone noble while being so vile and reprehensible to attack the voting rights of black folk and of poor folk. Yeah, and I, I think it's, uh, it's also important to note that the, uh, the strategy that's been used are the same, whether you are in the South, in the West, or wherever you might be, that there is a constant drumbeat to uh, take away those opportunities that we fought for and won during what I would call the glory days. Uh, there has never been an instance where African-Americans or racial minorities have dominated the political process in this country. Uh, yet the constant cry that we hear, and in North Carolina, I can go all the way back to 1835, mm -hmm. uh, when African, free Africans in North Carolina could vote, could vote in 1835 during the enslavement uh, period. And uh, whites uh, decided that no, uh, we don't want black domination. And doing Reconstruction, uh, the uh, issue that came up was, well, we have this Black domination. You, you have uh, less than a dozen people, African-Americans in Congress. You have a small number in uh, state uh, government, and they wanted to fight against Black domination, which did not exist, nor does it exist today, nor at any other point. Uh, so to them, uh, black domination is having anyone present in the uh, in, in the process. So the attack has always been similar in every state 
there is a game plan under underway. Uh, Dr. Anderson talked about Texas, talked about Alabama. We experienced that right here in uh, in North Carolina. Immediately after Shelby, there was an omnibus law uh, passed in uh, North Carolina that we fought against. We called it the omnibus voter suppression law, which dealt with this issue of uh, voter uh, ID, and uh, we won. Uh, that uh, that that case, but the attacks were the same wherever you went. So it suggests to me that it is not governmental efficiency. It is not fiscal responsibility that is that issue. It's us, as uh, Dr. Lowry used to say, it's us, not the bus. Uh, that, <laughs> is the, uh, that is the focus of uh, of these attacks. The other point I just want to make. Uh, Dr. Anderson mentioned the uh, bailout provision that was in the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act, which is a simple thing that says that if you can show for 10 years that you did not discriminate against African-Americans, then you could be relieved of any responsibility under the Voting Rights Act. And I can count the number of jurisdictions that even tried to do that on on one hand. Okay. Uh, in, 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 in the South, there was never an intent to comply. And it's just like a school desegregation. We are going to fight as long as we have to, and we are going to use public resources in that battle to undermine the opportunity for African-Americans and other racial minorities to participate. And if we can kick out African-Americans, then other racial minorities will fall and follow that uh, follow that line. So right. yeah. that's what we're dealing with. Here. That's what we're dealing with. And, and so, and, 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 and understand that the courts did not stop at Shelby. I mean, that's the other thing. This attack is ongoing. So you see that, you know, I talked about the motor voter law um, that dealt. And so one of the key provisions in there uh, deals with maintaining voter rolls. And it says, okay, you can, we, you know, yes, we have voter registration, but you have to maintain the voter rolls. And so folks who die shouldn't be on your voter rolls. Folks who move out of the, the, the state shouldn't be on your voter rolls. This is like logical. This is the land of duh. Uh, but it also says you cannot remove folks simply because they haven't voted. Well, what you saw, for instance, like in the state of Ohio, in Ohio, their secretary of state was removing tons of folk simply because they hadn't voted. That would be in violation of federal law. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court came back. And when I mean, so like 25% of the folks in one mass swoop removed from the voter rolls in Ohio came out of Cuyahoga County alone. Cuyahoga County is Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio. It is a democratic bastion. It is where a lot of black folk live in Cleveland. And so removing them simply because they hadn't voted regularly against federal law. The US Supreme Court ruled, oh, that's cool. You know, you gotta maintain the voter rolls. So if you know you wipe out folks who haven't voted in a while, you're just doing your 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 duty, your governmental duty, and make sure that these roles are maintained. Well, these roles, the the maintenance of these roles, they're coming in with sledgehammers because what we know from the research is that folks who don't vote regularly 
are minorities, poor folk, and young folk. And so when I talked about how you can begin to the, the hit list for voter suppression, this is one of the ways that you can get them. The other way that you, you get them are with these voter roll purges that um, look at names. So you had interstate cross-check, uh, which was the big Chris Kobach thing. Um, and it said, exactly. if you're registered in multiple states, then you can be removed from the rolls. And the way they would check, they said, and it sounded so neat and clean, technologically clean. We're looking at first names, last names, suffix, junior, senior, last four of your social security and your birth date. And so it sounds like it's, it's neat, but it's not because they weren't looking at birth date or last four of your social security. What they were really honing in on was your last name. Well, in the United States, something like 80 to 85% of the most common last names are names that minorities have. So if your last name is Washington, there's almost a 90% chance that you're African-American. If your last name is Garcia, there's over a 90% chance that you are Latino. If your last name is Kim, there's over a 90% chance that you are Asian-American. So what you saw in these voter roll purges using interstate cross-check was that you had African-Americans overrepresented by 45% in the voter roll purges. You had Asian-Americans overrepresented by 31% in the voter roll purges. And you had Hispanics overrepresented by 24% in the voter roll purges. So when Professor Joyner talks about you target black folk and you can get everybody else, those kinds of voter roll purges really exemplify that. And the U.S. Supreme Court, they didn't go after interstate cross-check, but these massive voter roll purges where they're going after folks who don't vote regularly, the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, we're cool with that. Then you take the decision dealing with extreme partisan gerrymandering. Ooh. And, and in a previous decision, the court had ruled, ah, oh, we don't think this is just stickable. You know, this looks like politics. And then uh, uh, Justice Kennedy said, but if you could come up with a formula that showed that this was actually extreme partisan gerrymandering, then we could rule on that. So a group of scholars came together and developed a formula for being able to identify extreme partisan gerrymandered districts, states. The court looked at that and 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 you had um, Gorsuch going, ah, this looks like my steak rub, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, just absolutely dismissive. Um, and, and you had uh, Justice Ginsburg going, look, this is about democracy. And what we're seeing in these extreme partisan gerrymandered districts are that folks are being denied access to democracy access to their voting rights. Because what that was doing, what extreme partisan gerrymandered districts do, I'll give you a great example, go back to Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, after the 2010 election, a handful of Republicans locked themselves in a hotel room for like four months. They had powerful map drawing software and, and they had um, like Cambridge analytic data. And they were like, how, and they had two goals. One, to draw the maps 
to, re to remove as many competitive districts as possible. Because part of what you know is that when the districts aren't competitive, when folks have been there, as my mother would say, since heck was a pup, then it, it lowers <laughs> it lowers voter turnout because folks are like, oh, he's been there, always going to be there. You know, they're going to have to carry him out in a casket. So it doesn't matter if I vote because that's who's who is going to be. So if you remove competitive districts, you can lower voter turnout. The other goal was to say, regardless of how many votes we get, we will always have the majority of the power. So think about that in a democracy regardless of how many votes we get, we will always have the majority of the power. And so that's how they drew the districts so that it creates more power in sparsely populated rural counties that are overwhelmingly white in Wisconsin. And it diluted the power of, of black voters in Milwaukee. So that in that first election after these maps came out, uh, Democrats got like 52% of the vote, but something like 38% of the seats. Think about that. 52% of the vote, 38% of the seats. Wow. Yes. Yes. And the amazing. U.S. Amazing. And the yeah. U.S. Supreme Court looked at that and said, no, nah, we cool with that. There's nothing we can do with this. And so it basically then gave the, the okay to have these extreme partisan gerrymandered districts where, and so you begin to ask yourself, why is it that you're looking at the, when you're looking at the polls and the majority of folks want sensible gun safety regulations, when the majority of the folks want reproductive rights enshrined, when the majority of the folks want access to quality healthcare, affordable healthcare, why is it that when we're seeing these kinds of numbers, 70, 80%, Aren't we seeing the legislation that goes with that? These extreme partisan gerrymandered districts mean that you can have an unrepresentative representative government. Mm. Yeah. So the courts are getting more conservative. Woo. <laughs> Not less. <laughs> so how does that bode for um, the continued dismantling of the Voting Rights Act. I know you talked about section two, um, Professor Joyner, and I would like for you to just kind of circle back and just briefly tell us what section two or the um, gutting of that particular um, section will further do to the Voting Rights Act itself. Uh, well, first of all, section two is uh, designed to uh, address uh, historic discrimination where you're looking back at uh, what has happened. And under Section 2, if you can establish that there was some action taken uh, and it was because of the person's race or it had the effect of impacting on the basis of race, then there is a Section 2 uh, violation. So you look at both the effect and the, uh, and the intent of the, uh, of the statute uh, and just kind of pointing in on this uh, notion of partisan gerrymandering, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court said uh, that uh, partisan gerrymandering is not something that is cognizable under the federal constitution. That we can't look at that because that's a political issue. That is uh, the give and take between the various uh, political parties. Uh, that does not create 
justiciability uh, for us to re 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 review. But if it is to be reviewed, uh, then uh, the state courts uh, can do that uh, under the uh, state constitution. And if the, a state has some constitutional prohibition against that, then that's fine. Here in North Carolina, we took them up on that and uh, uh, filed an action in state court under the state constitution where the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court said that, whoa, wait a minute. No, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't sanction uh, this uh, notion of partisan uh, gerrymandering. So when you uh, have this partisan gerrymandering, it offends the North Carolina Constitution. Uh, the same conservative forces then turned around and said, wait a minute, no. Uh, when you talk about now uh, congressional or federal election, there is a provision in the Constitution which says that the, uh, that, that the legislatures of the various states have the power, the unfettered power, hmm. to, uh, to uh, gerrymander any way that they want to. And the state courts have absolutely no say in what uh, the uh, legislature does. Now, that's the case now that's presently uh, before the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So you have a switcheroo uh, that uh, immediately has uh, been developed. So where the Supreme Court just yesterday said that, well, partisan gerrymandering can review, be reviewed by the state court. Now the legislature, because it did not work in their favor uh, in, uh, in this state, is now going back and say, well, wait a minute. No, uh, there is no binding force that prevents the uh, legislature from doing what it is that they want to do. Therefore, we can draw lines that will entrench forever our power in controlling the uh, votes of a state uh, when you uh, deal with these uh, federal uh, votes, which has to do with Congress, which has to do with the Senate and the presidents, uh, which has a lot of very negative implications uh, because if you can uh, uh, run that uh, legal theory and that is endorsed by the U.S. Supreme Court, then you can do anything with respect to federal uh, elections. But then, you know, we have to also continue to fight these issues at the state court level because we cannot let uh, the uh, state constitutions not be enforced mm -hmm. uh, because in every particular southern state, there are provisions in the state constitution that should empower attacks on what it is that the legislature is attempting to do, particularly in those conservative states, so that we are able to find a way uh, to uh, maintain our, our pool uh, at, the, uh, at the state level. But we have to fight it any way that we can. And uh, if we are not going out to vote, putting the right people in office, taking the wrong people out of office, then uh, our goose is cooked. I mean, it's just that, uh, it's, just that uh, it's just that simple. And over uh, the, you know, looking back at history, we see where all of these efforts have been successful, we fought back. And when we fight back, we win. Yes. And if we don't fight back, then we won't win. And our history proves that. And in this uh, volatile, uh, political arena, we have to be standing up 
in line for eight hours, 10 hours, whatever it takes, uh, voting by mail, voting in person, voting by bicycle or any other sickle uh, that we can uh, come up with to make sure that uh, we are counted in the uh, final tally uh, that uh, comes up as to who is the uh, winner of these uh, campaigns. Yeah, and, and one of the, 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 so that's the independent state legislature theory. And, and you begin to think about in the 2020 election, how you had these fake electors. Uh, so you had these, these folks coming in under these state legislatures saying that they were the actual real electors for the electoral college. And if those fake electors had been able to uh, impede the certification of the 2020 election, it was designed to nullify 81 million votes for Joseph Biden. So that's what the, that's the that's the the threat of this independent state legislature uh, theory that's now before the U.S. Supreme Court. The other threat that's before the U.S. Supreme Court deals with a gerrymandering case coming out of Alabama. I know, shocking, just shocking. Um, <laughs> and, and so what Alabama did, 27% of Alabama's population is African-American. Alabama drew its, its maps, its congressional maps, so that basically about 15% or so, can't remember the quite actual percentage, but a smaller percentage of African Americans are actually represented in by the congressional uh, repre uh, uh, legislation, by the by the congressional representatives in terms of who their representatives will be. So you can draw the map where you can concentrate all the black folks in one spot, or you can divvy them up in so many ways that they are they're not they're not able to 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 weigh in uh, effectively on who their representative will be. And so that's the map that that Alabama drew. And that was the case where Justice Katanji Brown Jackson was really just hitting them hard with their own originalist mess because they used the originalism to try to take us back to the 1800s. And she took them through the history of the 14th Amendment. Like this is what the originalist intent was of the 14th amendment. So you're hollering colorblind, colorblind. All we want is what Martin Luther King wanted. No, you don't. No, you don't. Get his name out your mouth. No, you do not. <laughs> um, and, 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 and so she walked them through the history of the 14th amendment and how it was designed to deal with the systematic violations of the citizenship rights of African-Americans and that you can't have colorblind when you're still doing this racist mess. And so, I mean, she and she was much more eloquent than I. Um, she just nailed it, nailed it. Um, and so these are the battles within the course. And so when Professor Joyner was talking about we must vote, what that means is that when we understand that Supreme Court justices are nominated by a president and then confirmed by a Senate, who we elect as president and who we elect it to be in that Senate has a direct impact on who is sitting on the US Supreme Court. Then we have our state elections for judges, who they are 
has a lot to do with how they rule in terms of these state laws dealing with our rights. We have to know who these folks are and we have to vote accordingly. So the right to vote is absolutely instrumental in us being able to uphold our citizenship rights through the courts. So then that brings us to, I guess, what would need to be our final question. And that is what can the average person do to be a part of how courts are overseen? I think you've touched on that somewhat. I mean, we've got to get out and vote. But as you see, and, and I think for both of you as college professors, you've got the, the next generation, right? Sitting before you all the time. And so how are you preparing them not to lose heart, but to really take this on um, as a matter of duty, but also as a matter of their, their rights and their, their life going forward? Well, you know, when, 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 I, when I was growing up in Jim Crow, North Carolina, I was in a uh, segregated school. Uh, we uh, had to walk uh, two miles to get to school and two miles to get back uh, from school. But uh, our teachers taught us about the Constitution and the meaning of the Constitution and what the promises of the Constitutions were and that we had to hold those ideals dear to our heart and to fight uh, for those. It was a part of every class that, uh, that I was in as I went through uh, elementary school, went through uh, junior high school, but it evidenced hope and faith that America was gonna be what America claimed that it was. And if we held their foot to the fire, that they would have to change. And uh, I make it a point in all of my classes and meeting with all of my students to uh, replicate just that lesson that uh, we have to, first of all, understand the meaning of the constitution and how it applies to us. And then we have to hold the feet of those people who are in power uh, to the fire uh, to make sure that they live up, live up to the lofty goals of that, those constitutional protections, because if, if they ignore that, then the democracy is gone. If they uphold it, the democracy is secure. And so that is a principal part of every lesson that I teach. And that I think that every person who is in a teaching position, and that not only includes teachers and professors, but also parents and Sunday school teachers and you know everybody else who is uh, operating with uh, younger lives uh, that, uh, that they need to do. Because without hope, then we are doomed. And that's why we need to vote with every ounce of blood left in our bodies. Because if we don't, as Dr. Anderson said, put the right people in place, then the wrong people, will uh, undermine and destroy this constitution. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I'm just gonna say, amen. <laughs> uh, we, we have seen that. Uh, we have seen what the wrong people in, in positions of power can do. It was Andrew Johnson. So how do I do it? 
I do it as a historian. I look at these moments. I, when I'm teaching my students, I'm looking at these moments of possibility and what happens to undermine that possibility and how there's always this struggle. There's always this fight. There's always this vision about what America could be. And it is in that fight. When you think about how we go, yeah, it is when we, it's in these moments where the good guys win, where you see the bad guys, those who are trying to destroy human lives, where they are absolutely getting dropped, kicked. Uh, and, and it's when, and, 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 and so it is, it's the Edmund Pettus Bridge where you see the incredible stoic power of John Lewis and Hosea Williams and the 600 folks who are standing behind them and how they are through nonviolence, they are dealing with the incredible oppression and violence of, of George Wallace and his, and his stormtroopers, how they are, how we look at you know so how this nation looks at the civil rights movement and embraces it, right? They're like, you know, they embrace the the veneer of it because it's that moment where racial oppression was overcome, where the good guys won. And so we have to continue to to tell those messages that it was in this struggle, it was in this organizing, it was in this vision of democracy that won, and that we are the next wave of that. And, and so what we're up against by understanding this history, but what we're up against now is that same kind of intense uh, threat to entrench oppression, to undermine democracy, to undermine the right to vote, to undermine the right to free speech. So where you've got like in Florida, a law saying that protesters can be run over by cars. What? What? <laughs> um, and, 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 but we have the power to put in place folks who believe in democracy, who don't believe in autocracy, who don't believe in oppression. We have that power, we must wield that power. And we must understand that there are these barriers, but what we also see is the ongoing organizing that is part of our long-term history, the organizing for democracy. And so that's what I, 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 I speak to my students about. That's just amazing. That's awesome. I wish we had so much more time. I loved your book. I, I wish we could have told, I wanted you to tell the story of the, um, of the, the bus, the senior citizens on the bus going to vote and, right. and the county commission and the people being afraid of the big black bus and therefore turning it around and sending right. it back. Um, there are just so many of these stories. And, um, and, but I think that the inspiration and the, 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 the passion with which you and Professor Joyner uh, speak to this issue um, will serve the communities, all of our communities well, and keep the consciousness raised of, of people who would be allies in this fight as well. Yeah. So um, I certainly want to thank you so very much for being a part of this podcast today. Dr. Carol Anderson, Professor Irving Joyner, great to have you here again. But that is all the time that we have for this episode. And as usual, I want to thank my wonderful producer, Christine McTaggart, for organizing this. And thank you all very much. And we look forward to seeing and hearing you again. Thank okay. you.